You're listening to Stir Crazy with Steve Jenkins. Conversations with creatives during the quarantine. Hey, what's up, people? How you doing? Welcome to Stir Crazy with Steve Jenkins. I am Steve Jenkins. It's been quite some time since the last podcast came out. Uh, I think it was July was the last one I put out. The 22nd episode, which was Teddy Kumpel. And I had no intentions of it being so long between that episode and this one. But here we are. I've been getting inquiries from people like, hey, man, is the podcast done? Are you finished? And it's like, no, no. Um, I just got hung up on some things. You guys have been around. You know what's going on in the world. Life is... It's been super fucked up. I don't really have like a long statement prepared to like apologize or explain why I haven't been doing this, but I needed some time to sort some stuff out. There's some decisions I guess we've all had to decide or make since this thing has started. And in the coming weeks, I'm sure I'll talk more about it. But in the meantime, I'm happy to report that we're back. I got a bunch of interviews ready to go. I'm going to be recording some new ones. Um, let's just get right into it. Because it's a long episode. I figured, like, let's start back with a uh, with a giant episode. You know, if it's a bear, make it a grizzly. That's what I say. My guest today is Steve Lawson. Steve is a prolific solo bassist who has put out a staggering amount of records, and he's always working on something. In fact, every couple weeks he's like, dude, check out my new record. And I wish I could work as fast as someone like Steve does. Steve explores all kinds of sonic landscapes with effects, loopers, he uses MIDI, and um, that's all accompanied by him and his trusty six-string bass. I think I first heard about Steve at some point in the late 90s. There was a magazine at one point called Bass Frontiers, and um, I I can't remember if I saw an ad or if there was an article, but that was a magazine that definitely... um, would focus on international bass players as well, because Steve, Steve's from the UK. Um, but anyway, in real life, we became friends through social media, and then we met at the NAMM show, and uh, we've been friends ever since. That was probably 10 years ago. Steve's been online forever, and he has a great social media presence. Some of his views are extremely forward-thinking about how he thinks about music and distribution, especially in the age of streaming. Besides his recorded musical output, everyone should take time to read through his blog. He's got many great things to say, and I think they're things that all independent musicians and creatives would benefit from reading. Steve and I had this chat back in July, and as you'll hear, it's a really long chat, but it's fun. We had a great time. Everybody was in good spirits. We cover all kinds of topics from bass playing to the role of social media and how that's changed over time, all kinds of stuff. It's a really great chat. And here's how it went. There's the strange permanence of what happens online, you know. And I don't think people always consider it because, you know, like to a certain extent, it just feels like things seem to only last while the oxygen of people's attention spans give them some kind of a life. And then they're sort of archived some somehow, but like they're still there. I think there's only a few platforms where stuff uh, disappears or goes somewhere. Like I, I don't do Snapchat, but I know that like those yeah. photos end up. Someone archives them, but but I yeah, feel yeah, like yeah. you know 
I don't know if, if you've ever done that thing where you go on the Wayback Machine just to look at what the internet looked like 10 years well, ago. Well, I'm, I'm using it a lot for my PhD. The, the, way, the Wayback Machine is, is a big part of my research because there's whole sections of my website that don't exist anymore that I don't have an archive of and I can actually go back and look at it. So it's kind of weird how it's kind of useful, but also terrifying because it is, it does show how there's kind of, you know, we, we don't know, you know, what, what's been stored and what hasn't. We have almost no control over our data anymore. Yeah. And uh, I think it was a really interesting thing that, that Yannick and Victor got into last night on the, that discussion. They were talking about this. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it's, you know, it's, 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 the the particular point that Yannick was making was is way too complex to deal with in the context of a seminar on solo bass, but I think they actually kind of that they both made some really interesting points about that whole thing of of like people not being able to make mistakes and not being able to grow and and you know it it's 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 got to the point now where it's just a cliche for people our age to go wow I'm glad there wasn't the internet when I was a teenager. And, uh, and, you know, and, and you know, I, I, it's true, but, you know, the reason, the reason everybody says it is because we're all going, well, thank God none of that stuff was, was, is online. Um, but, but it is deep, deeply worrying that, that our kids don't get to grow and that, that human beings don't. And, but having said that, there are examples of people who've said stupid shit over, the over their, you know, at whatever point, either before or after they got famous, and have actually come clean. There was, there was an example over here with a... Uh, a grime MC called Stormzy, mm -hmm. who had uh, his early Twitter account had some stuff on it that was kind of misogynistic and homophobic, and he just went, you know what? I, I, yeah, I was. That was that was the the culture I was running with at the time. It's not okay. It's never been okay, and I'm growing and learning, and I'm sorry. And like he didn't try and go. He didn't try and say it was okay. He didn't try and say, oh well, you know, in the context that was all right. He just said no. Like you know, I, I was immersed in a culture where where people talk like that but none of it was okay. And, uh, and it was, you know, and, it, and, and he, didn't, he didn't suffer any major ill effects from that. But I think it's when people try and go, ah, you're reading it wrong. You know, it's not, that's not really what I meant. You go, well, yeah, it kind of is what you meant. Um, you know, you've just got to own the fact that, that we, you have, you know, that, that all through, I mean, all of us have had periods in our life when we had fairly shitty views about things or hadn't thought through an issue and still, and still talked about it and said stupid stuff. And uh, and the but the internet is this this horrible kind of um, capture device for all of that, and that's that's not great. That's not helpful. Yeah, it's weird. It it it's kind of it's kind of the past, present, and future in in one convenient location. Um, yeah. So, I mean, like what I think about, and you know, there's the whole gotcha thing too. You know, where yeah. it's like. Uh, I don't know if you see, I think the other thing is the one thing that I, I think maybe is a good thing. Sometimes I'll talk to people who have some kind of presence on the internet and there are things that they just don't catch on to because the cycle is too fast. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I don't know if it matters if I drop this person's name or not, but like, I don't know if you caught wind of like that drummer who said some terrible things and then she got kind of like dismantled. Yes. Yes. I did um, see that. So there's like that kind of stuff, but I'd say on a, on a larger scale, um, I don't know if you followed the thing about James Gunn and James Gunn had made these tweets and someone on the, on the right basically 
James Gunn got kicked off of Guardians of the Galaxy 3 for a while. Oh, really? Okay. He got removed from it. And it was because he had made these tweets in 2009 when Twitter really wasn't what it is now. No. Um, like, Twitter's completely morphed as a platform, and uh, it's, it's terrifying. But, but in 2009, it's like I don't think people really understood – where it was at that point i know i certainly didn't like i in in twitter like on twitter in 2009 i was talking about i just had a sandwich and now it's time to go to rehearsal like it was that stupid you know it wasn't like you know it wasn't like circulating uh news or or it wasn't a place for political ideologies yeah it wasn't a broadcast platform it was basically public uh, public um uh irc or something it was just chat it was and so we would post status updates yeah yeah i'm i'm glad i did this today and this happened and 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 it was and it was it was it was you know the the the, again the twitter cliche of people talking about their breakfast and you know what it was because you were chatting to 50 or 100 mates although having said that the weird thing was back then uh, uh, the uh the 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 point at which i started to get a feel for how powerful this stuff was was when Lobelio and I, my wife and I, um, posted one tweet. I think it would have been, what's it? I think it would have been 2009, because 2008, it it would have been 2008, actually, because it was the year we got married. Um, We posted one tweet saying, we're coming to the States to play. Who wants to book us? And off the back of that one tweet, we had 40-something offers, and 27 of them turned into into dates. Wow. So we did 27 house concert, 27 day house concert tour off the back of a single tweet. And that wouldn't happen now. If I posted that now, I'd get the three people who replied to everything that I do would go, yeah, and it wouldn't mean anything. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and it would just, it would just, it would turn into nothing. Um, and I, what I'd probably have is a bunch of DMs from other musicians going, man, can you hook me up with some sweet house concerts? <laughs> like, no, that's what I'm trying to do for myself here right now. <laughs> Um, it's, it, it's, it's, yeah, the, the, the size of the audience has obviously changed, but also the fact that we all follow so many more people means that the, the individuals that we follow just don't matter so much. And, uh, and it's, I think for, for us as musicians, it's weird because the way that we accumulate an audience is the, the easiest way to measure it is in scale and kind of look at it and go, oh, well, I've got 10,000 followers or I have, you know, 8,000 people following me on Instagram and I got this many likes. And yet none of that actually measures the significance of what you're doing to them kind of in their lives. And so at that point I had maybe 1,500, 2,000 followers on Twitter, but they were people who all had some sort of investment in what I was up to in my life. And, uh, which is extraordinary. You know, that's an amazing, that's a, that's a huge number of people to actually be waking up and caring about what you're up to. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it was probably higher than the number of people who care about what I'm up to now, despite the fact that I've now got, you know, 11 and a half thousand Twitter followers or whatever. And I don't think there are 11 and a half thousand people who, who, I mean, half of them probably see my tweets come up and go, who's that guy? How did I end up following him? Like, <laughs> like, looking for the sponsored, looking for the sponsored thing at the bottom. <laughs> yeah, it's like, like, did I, did I just like come on Twitter drunk one night and start <laughs> following a bunch of weirdos? Is it, you know, I don't know. So I'm assuming that's what happens. Um, yeah. Because, because I don't understand it at all anymore. Like, like there was a time when my job was explaining Twitter to people. Yeah. And it just isn't anymore. You know, I don't, I don't, I can't make sense of it. 
<laughs> like that for anyone. Yeah, I'll tell you who got me on Twitter or got me into it was was Vernon Reed. Vernon, he actually, the, the phrase that people were throwing around about Twitter, and this was definitely in the earnest period with Twitter, like like 2009, they were calling it microblogging. Yeah, 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 yeah. You remember that mm -hmm. phrase, like microblogging? So, so that's, that's how I got into it. I have never really tried, I, for some reason, I've never transcended, like, I have like 2000 followers or less than 2000 followers. And like, I don't know if who those people are. Um, <laughs> I've never tried to grow it. I've had tweets in the last 12 months. I have like, I had one that went, I don't know if it went viral, but I got like almost like a thousand like likes on it, you know, <laughs> yeah. when I was talking about the rock and roll hall of fame and like, or it was something, I mean, there's a few, you know, I've had a couple things that have like caught some steam, but like, I just don't know sometimes I just don't, I don't know exactly how essential it is other than it just fits into the other parts of the digital ecosystem, I, you know? I think it's, it's one of those weird things where, where when people try and strategize about it, what you end up doing is, is just producing content that, that games the platform and doesn't necessarily have any significance outside of that. So yeah. if, you, if you can write a tweet that, has, that gets you 50,000 retweets or 100,000 retweets or whatever, like that's clever in terms of what it does to Twitter, but it has, it's no metric of the significance of that thing. Because it might be that you just came up with some, you know, comedy bit about hair color or, you know, growing a beard during lockdown or just some other bullshit. <laughs> but like like that, that's, that's a writing skill. And I have friends of mine who are journalists or comedians or script writers for whom... Twitter is just writing practice. Yeah. But they just, they do it because you got, you, you, you know, trying to put a beginning, middle and an end to a, to a thing in, in how, I don't even know how many characters Twitter is now. Is it 250? Whatever it is. <laughs> like trying yeah, to get a beginning, a middle and an end into that. Like that's, that's a real writing skill. And, uh, and I think having done it for so long, I've got fairly good at it, but I yeah. don't, but I don't game it. I don't, I, I kind of, I gave up trying to because because every now and again I will I'll think of something and go oh I think this will do this will do numbers on Twitter and and it it, it gets tumbleweed and everybody ignores it I'm like really I thought that was kind of cool <laughs> <laughs> and then of course the one that does actually go viral always has a typo in it yeah and you're like ah oh, shit I can't delete it and fix it now but it's funny you were mentioning about Vernon because Vernon is is I mean you know I, I it's if you want to know what to do online, just be like Vernon. Like that would be my advice now to any, any musician. It's like, go look what he does because he just, it, it's as an advert for, or just as a representation of him as a complete human being, his Twitter feed is amazing. Yeah. Like it's like you, you could have no interest in his music at all and still find it utterly compelling. And, uh, and I think that that's, and, and then that's reflected in the music. You listen to the music that he makes, whether, on his own with you know with you guys in the in the trio with with living color and it and it makes sense of of who he is and i think that's what social media is really good at and it's interesting when musicians shy away from that and go no i'm just going to tweet about my work and you go well actually the the when you start again back to what victor wooten was saying last night yeah you know the, the music music is about isn't about music music is about your life and with someone like vernon what you get is this complete picture. So it's not even just his activist side or, you know, it's not like, it's not like he writes political headlines on Twitter and then writes a soundtrack to that. What you see is somebody who's a, a sci-fi nerd and a history buff and a news analyst and 
deeply invested in so many areas of music culture and and that's what makes sense in the music so i think that 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 capacity of social media to be rather than thinking about doing big numbers with a single tweet thinking of the whole thing as a narrative project where people read it and go oh i kind of get what this person's about and i think for me that's that's what works best yeah. is that, that over years i've had people who have i've had subscribers who said well i subscribed to you just because you seem like a, a decent person and then i came and listened to your music and they approach the music wanting to like it and that that one sentence that idea of, of somebody actually coming to your music with a desire to like what you're doing in a culture where we're always looking for snark is such a rare thing it's like we listen to things hoping that they suck so we can go and bitch about them. <laughs> like, yeah. And so the fact that if you can actually get to a place where the people who've been following you on Twitter and haven't listened to your music, because nobody clicks links anyway. So you've got a bunch of people who will find you on Twitter and live in there or Facebook or wherever. And or, or, or we've seen a 15 minute clever thing you did, on, a 15 second clever thing you did on Instagram. But then when they finally do arrive at an album, you need them to actually care enough to listen to it with open ears. Because, you know, otherwise you're just trying to write pop songs. You're trying to engage with them on that level where you're snaring them with something that's so, you know, egregiously catchy that they can't possibly get away from it. And actually my music and your music requires a level of commitment from the audience. There's an investment that they need to make to get what it is we're up to. And I mean, particularly with the kind of bigger ambient stuff that I do and, and through lockdown, a lot of the stuff that I've been making has been longer longer tracks and it makes no sense like as like if my feed was just full of my music on social media it doesn't make any sense because the time frame within which people engage with that stuff isn't 15 minutes it's five seconds i remember hearing a, a thing evan marion was saying to scott divine once that he'd worked out that the perfect length for a, an instagram video for, for him was like four seconds or something mm -hmm. that because then people will watch it a certain number of times and engage yep. with it and like it and then move on but if it was any longer than that, a lot of people didn't get to the end. You're like, can you imagine getting frustrated with a six second video of somebody playing like Evan, like, like every note he plays is, is monstrously amazing. And you kind of go, oh, four seconds into it and I'm going to skip. Like, so he'd, he'd actually done this kind of calculation and it was, and that's the kind of time frame that you're working with. So when you present your music online, it has to sit within the context of, of, the creation of a desire to spend some time with it and that and that can be i mean you know it can be the traditional route of, of reviews and and comments from celebrity mates saying hey this guy's great check out jenkins he's really he really works mm. <laughs> that can help yeah it really does help. if it but if it comes from you if it's just that you are a super engaging person and it's funny i, I mean you know you and i have a history of just making each other laugh for, for hours on end right right on chat and i think but what's great i think is if, is that that facebook has become that for you that you get to be the stand-up guy on facebook and i think that that it's weird how that makes your music more compelling <laughs> yeah because i think because because it, it frames you as not being some kind of fusion weenie who sits in his room and and plays clever bass because if you've seen 15 seconds of what you do you have monstrous technique but that's all in your music. That's all in the service of the music. So this much bigger picture of you as, as the guy who's political and funny and sardonic, but also reflective in the way that you write about what's going on in the world. That plus the shredding that crops up every now and again on Instagram. And then you go, okay, great. Well, somewhere in the middle of that, there's a desire to, to find out 
more hopefully that's the, you know and that's what we, that's what we need well it's interesting because i and thanks for saying all that like it's it's interesting because i think now my viewpoint of all those things is i'm trying to i'm trying to just make it all a very holistic part of it because because mm. ultimately um and it doesn't really matter who it is um i actually you know who said this to me and, it, and it, at the time we were talking about it, it blew my mind uh I, i'm friends with tony gray and i haven't yeah, yeah yeah i haven't seen tony in a long time but there was one time where i think we were in boston and we were both working at berkeley doing this thing for uh they have like a guitar week where all all these students mostly high school kids who are probably prospective berkeley students uh like they'll go for a week it's called guitar week not the most yeah. creative title but it's like you know <laughs> <laughs> um but basically they have rhythm sections that are made up of like professional musicians and it's like it was like a good way to make some extra money and it was also a nice week to hang with everybody so Tony and I were talking about, um, I don't know if we were talking about like just the state of like what bass players are doing now or like what, how there's like this huge wave of, of technical playing that has just because of the incremental progress that happens when more people are doing a certain thing, it sort of advances what the uh, status quo might be for like, if someone's like, what what would be considered lots of technique in in 2000 whatever but tony said this to me and it really i've never been able to forget what he said which is he's like man everybody's fast now so that really won't be the most interesting part yeah of what someone does like it's not impressive any it's impressive but it's not impressive enough anymore you know and and for bass i mean it's weird because um I think it just depends what your value system is and like how you gauge what you're listening to. Cause there's, there's obviously a context for everything. So it doesn't mean that like if someone plays that way, it's uninteresting if they're not using it in some kind of a functional uh, setting, like playing in a band where the bass would just be like a groove instrument. But I think what he's saying, what he was saying, what I got from that was, even if you have all these things at your disposal, you still have yeah. to figure out who you are. Otherwise you're just going to be part of the homogenized landscape of people that can play their instruments with proficiency. And I think that's a sad, I just, I just, in my brain, when I think about that, I just, I know for me personally, I don't think anyone wants to end up here, but I don't want to be one of those like faceless sort of identity musicians where it's yeah. like you know you know you know musicians like this where they sound excellent there's nothing quote-unquote wrong with what they're doing at yeah. all but it just doesn't there there's isn't no enough going it. on yeah. For, yeah. yeah well it's it's i mean it's there are two two stories to that there's one of my favorites is is one that winter marsalis told about his dad ellis marsalis the great piano player who passed mm -hmm. away recently and uh, winton was saying that he when he first developed his circular breathing technique he would go up on stage and he'd do it and he'd do a kind of, you know, a lick for three minutes and the audience would go nuts. And he came home and told his dad and he said, dad, they were just, they were just clapping and cheering and screaming. And it was amazing. And his dad said, well, if you're going to play for applause, that's all you're going to get. And it was, it was, you know, a moment for him to go, actually, what do I want? Do I just want people to whoop and cheer without, because it, what I'm doing is clever or do I actually want to engage them on a, on a, on a different level? Um, and the other, the other analogy that, 
comes to mind would be what happened in men's tennis in the 90s. This is where I pretend I'm into sport. But, um, <laughs> but there was a thing that happened where for a while there were a handful of players who had an absolutely enormous serve. Like the technology had changed around rackets and it meant that if you were six foot four and incredibly supple, like you could serve at 15, 20 mile an hour faster than anybody else. And so you ended up with this thing where there were people who like were one trick ponies, but were winning matches just because they could blast the ball past anybody. And, uh, and it was, it kind of got really boring for a while, but then as soon as everybody else caught up, it was back to Tony's thing. Well, now everybody's fast. Like that just became the thing. And having just a massive serve suddenly was like, oh, I can't win with just that anymore. And mm. those people who were that disappeared and it, Pete Sampras came along. He was kind of, I guess, the first of the era of all-rounders who were extraordinarily fast, but also amazing at the rest of it. Um, but it, but it, was, it was absolutely that. It was like, you know, there was a point, there, there, were, these, there were these sort of technical exemplars of the base going through. And uh, as much as I find the continued obsession with Jaco Pistorius kind of tired the reason why people still talk about him ultimately is because he was way more well-rounded than just being the clever guy who could play bebop licks on a, on a fretless mm. but if you listen to word of mouth as a work of composition and arranging it's far more impressive than it is as a work of bass playing like it's it's an extraordinary record it's a record that is up there with the greatest of of kind of you know works of jazz arranging in the last 80 years and uh yeah. the first album was a great showcase for what he did and it was literally was put together as that but and if it had been just that then maybe the obsession would purely have been with his technique but but the thing was that he actually became this incredible presence within music and so i kind of get it i mean it, it's it's inc it's enormously reductive that everything gets filtered through a would jacko do that you know, kind of like, oh. well, no, like that's <laughs> right, that's, and it's not fair to to his legacy or to particularly to his family, no, for that to come up. I mean, it's, you know, poor poor, old, you know, Felix and and Julius and David and you know these kind of amazing musicians who are were still kind of dealing with that kind of bullshit every day and are unable to remember their relationship with you know with his uh, him as a family member because of this ridiculous cloud that sits over their instrument. Um, yeah. But but it kind of makes sense, more so than, say, Adrian Davison. Do you remember him? Oh, yeah, man. Like, I, you know, <laughs> like 32 notes per second, right? Wasn't that, that was the guy, and it was, and, and it was his advert. His advert in Bass Player Magazine used to say, world's fastest bass player. And at the time, I mean, <laughs> the, 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 like, you know, I don't know what he's doing now. Uh, you know, God bless him if he's, what, what, he's doing what he was doing. And at the time... Like I, I was, aesthetics were a little different, I guess. We were coming, we were coming out of the shred era um, at the beginning of the nineties. And it was, I guess it made some sense then, but yeah, from this vantage point, that's ridiculous. And nobody says, you know, Adrian Davidson only needed four strings. That's not, that's not a quote that comes. Maybe we should, maybe we should make that a thing. Maybe that should be our new hashtag. Um, <laughs> <Right>. what would... <laughs> What would, uh, you know, who are some other like forgotten heroes of that? Era? Randy Coven. Yeah. Oh, he's, he's, he passed on though. 
Like, yeah, yeah, but but he, but he, you know, he he was he did a solo, like a, a bass feature record in what eighty Funk Me Tender was what eighty five eighty six yeah. something like that. That was actually kind of a good for what it was. He actually yeah. that guy could actually play, man. Like he actually yeah. had he he sounded definitely like someone who was checking out a lot of Jeff Berlin. Like that was the thing because yeah. like he had that sort of back pickup sound and it it was a it was a really strangely produced record. But I know Vi was on one of those tracks that's why i listened to it because i was such a such a fan of vi you know what's weird is like in a strange way i feel like vi and this is probably not an obvious thing someone would say about vi being someone's counterpoint but like our counterpart but i think vi and jocko have a lot of similarities in that like vi has played amazing guitar on records where he's not doing what i think he's most known for doing which is yeah, like yeah, shredding yeah. like the public yeah. image limited records and things like that yeah yeah exactly like he's he's and, and i think with jocko i i think the reason that jocko has the status he does is because of his writing and i think uh, like what you yeah. were saying i think that's the thing i mean so the real this is probably an unfair way to measure someone but i feel like if you think about all the really quote unquote great, amazing bass players that have come out, like has there been anything like a continuum in like or something like a tune yeah. that that yeah. could potentially be played by other instruments besides bass and still be an amazing composition? Because well, that it, yeah. And, and when you when you think about when you do when you do think about the people who who are who would be on that level, that's that's sort of the measure of it, isn't it? I mean I, I can yeah. I can easily imagine Michael Mann's the enormous room working as a piano piece, or yep. you know, or there there are Stan, obviously Stanley Clark compositions that would work in that kind of way, but they're not solo bass, I guess. I, there, there's a couple of John Patitucci things. I was thinking about this with that with that Berkeley discussion last night. That um, there was a tune on his first album called Our Family. Yes, that I loved, absolutely loved, and uh, and also One More Angel, the title track from from that album, which was on. On six-string piccolo bass, so I think it was actually tuned like a guitar. It was just bigger scale for people with enormous hands, um, and uh, and that that's another just absolutely exquisite piece of music. And it would work on any any instrument. And but you think about those people, and they're people who have, I mean, all of them have been at one point celebrated for their technique. I mean, Michael Manning's technique is is so far beyond anything that's kind of conceivable as as kind of being a thing you can emulate. Like it's it's weird how few people actually sound like Michael Manning, and I think it's just because it's so bloody hard just to end up there. Um, but his longevity is all about his skills as a composer and his curiosity in terms of investigating things other than the sport of playing fast bass. Yeah. But the, and same with Stanley Clark. I, I interviewed Stanley a few years ago for a cover story on Bass Guitar Magazine. And uh, we had the most amazing conversation. And it's because, so one of my first questions was how did writing film scores change you as a, as a musician and a composer? And his eyes lit up because he understood exactly what I was asking, which was, you know, you've gone from being this outrageously great bass player who writes music that is by necessity a vehicle for that bass playing. Yeah. And suddenly you've got this, this much broader view of what it is to be a musician and he still has all of that skill. If you see him play now, he's playing as well as he ever has, but he's able to see it and put, frame it within a context that positions him as a writer of, of orchestral music and string quartets and, and all the kind of things you have to do within sound, soundtrack world. 
Um, and yeah, you know, and it, and it was, and, and he said, absolutely, it, it completely transformed who he was as a, as a writer and a player. And that's, and that's the thing that happens with, with musicians at that kind of level, is that they find some kind of frame, some kind of way of telling a story that is something other than look at me. I always used to kind of do this thing with students where I'd go, if you take a bunch of like, particularly 80s fusion, there was this thing where it was all music, it was music that was all answers and no questions. It was, and if you were to title it based on what it sounded like, it would be like, this next tune's called Check Me Out. This tune's called <laughs> Look What I Can Do. <laughs> but you can't do this, you know, muscle top or whatever. You know, it was like, you know, it was music for Camaro drivers. It was really, and, and there's a lot of that going around. And, and, you know, we grew up with that. And some of it was fun and lighthearted. And there was like, and some of it had some robust stuff on top of it, you know, like John Schofield's Blue Matter or something like that, where, Yes, you've got these these kind of robust muscular fusion grooves, but with some absolutely extraordinary writing and playing going around them. Yeah, um, but there was a bunch of other stuff that was fairly hollow because it was it was just written to be clever. And but the other, I mean, it's to use another sport. I'm, I'm into sports analogies today. I don't know where this is coming from. I have literally <laughs> no interest in sport, but it's kind of like the role that a pacemaker would play in a long distance race. Yeah. That you, you need somebody who's an idiot that goes out in front and makes everybody catch up. And Basis had a, had a series of those people who, who kind of moved the goalposts in terms of what was technically possible, but were never going to have the longevity thing happening. And other people came along and picked it up. And, and, and I mean, and, and just to broaden it out even wider, you get people who have monstrous technique and, and it becomes a, a, a distraction from what's actually great about what they do. I mean, whenever I, whenever I talk to students about Victor Wooten's playing, like, I mean, he, you know, he has ridiculous technique, mm -hmm. but his, his a, a most extraordinary contribution to bass is rhythmic. Yeah. Like he has a feel that is, I mean, it's, it's you know, I, you could hear him clicking his fingers and you would know it was him. Like he has a, a way of feeling the beat that is really high on the beat. Like he's not, he plays funk, but he plays funk like it's West African high life. Like it's really, like there's a real kind of a, a, a levity and a, and a celebration of life in his music that doesn't have that kind of, that funk swagger where it's kind of slightly malevolent and aggressive. There's none of that in his music at all. It's all got this life to it and this kind of thing. And so even when he's playing solo, like super clever stuff, mm. there is this celebration, this joy in the music that if you don't get right, you just look like you're playing a bunch of clever licks. Like almost every other version I've ever heard of classical thump or can't hold no groove or any of those tunes has been horrible. Oh yeah, yeah, no, it doesn't. Yeah, it's weird, man. I've seen the power of what he does from mm. a vantage point that very few have had because um, there is a, there's a festival I played on. I guess I've talked about this festival a couple of times because it was probably the low key, most intense bass hang in a professional situation there ever was. Like I was in Brazil with Vernon, it was this festival, uh, Rio dos Ostras. Um, I think I said that right. And is this the one where your gear got lost? No, 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 that was, that was like the very first time, uh, I went to Brazil with Vernon. That was 2005. Um, and, and, and from a technological standpoint, a lot of stuff had changed by then because, Cause even, I don't know if you're aware, like I we've talked about Leon Grunenbaum, uh, like the keyboard player and he has an instrument. Yeah. 
he invented called the Sam Chilean, which is ridiculous and amazing. And for those who, uh, I'll, I'll like talk about the links to this at the end of this episode, but because it's really weird and abstract to, to describe. But basically at that point, Leon and Vernon had racks of gear that they had to rely on. And, and by, you know, within, you know, uh, let's see, like eight years, seven, eight years, um, it got reduced to like laptops and, and yeah. just stuff that was easily portable and not as susceptible to getting lost maybe as like a rack was. But um, so Vernon, we were on this, we were on this festival. Stanley Clark was on the festival. Um, Will Calhoun had a trio with uh, Charnet Moffat there on the Ooh, wow. festival. Um, Scott Henderson was there with, with my buddy Travis Carlton on bass and Alan Hurts yeah. on drums. Those guys are buddies of mine here. And then Vic was there. And this was the band where he had like, uh, it was like Steve Bailey, Anthony Wellington. Like there's like four bass players in that band. I think Dave right. Welsh was the other guy. Right. And then, yeah. then there were like these Brazilian cats, like Pupakina was there. He and I sat down and jammed at one point. Like He's we just like passed that. this acoustic bass guitar back and forth and it was really cool man and, and it was a nice hang but I watched Vic's set from the stage when we because we there were a couple sets we all did and the biggest one was probably in front of like I want to guess maybe 15 to 20,000 people and um, I saw him do that solo piece he does like I think it's called The Lesson and yeah, yeah. I watched him from the side of the stage do it in front of that many people and just I mean, you just get a feeling of like, this is, this is really affecting these people. Like you could feel the wave of energy. And um, that's, I mean, it's not like I had to witness that to know how great he was. Cause you know, I've been a fan, you know, it's hard to not be affected by someone that plays in your instrument like that. Um, but just seeing that really kind of got, I didn't, I don't know, man, it just proved to me like how powerful it, it's not even just as ba like being a bass player, it's just as a, as a musical force. Like he went out there, you know, there's like this in huge, almost impenetrable wave of energy coming at him from all these people just being assembled. Yeah. Which now seems terrifying, but, but then, you know, it was just okay, <laughs> yeah, right. like it was terrifying for different reasons back then. It was more just like, okay, hopefully there's nothing, nothing goes off and people are, are calm. Like, you know, cause yeah. there are a ton of people here and it doesn't seem like there's any way to, to mitigate the numbers of folks. But um, he went out there and just played it, and it was it was amazing, man. Like you know, it was one of those things where that's not even one of his solo pieces where he's using any technology. He just like straight yep. into the straight into the amp, and so yeah, you know, it was it was really cool. It was really cool. But Which, he became. But it's, but it's back to your thing, your Tony Gray point. You know, like like there are a lot of people who can do, who, you know, who can do the chops, and that his stuff has been done to death like people have done the victor thing in terms of of the technical side of it but yeah. he's but he, he's not like if your thing is you know if somebody says if somebody says okay what do you do and you go well i'm a really great bass player and you go yeah but what do you do with it it's like saying right. i'm really good at talking and going yeah this is a job interview <laughs> right. yeah but i'm really good at talking i know i know <laughs> all the best words i can talk fast i've got i can do accents do you want me to do no this is a job interview like what are your skills accents mainly um yeah but, but like do you have any mechanical engineering things well yeah but i can talk about mechanical engineering like let me do let me do new york for you okay you know it's like can you yeah. stop doing that 
And it's, <laughs> and it's like that as a bass player. Like, like, if that's your thing, is playing bass really well? It's like, yeah, great. Now what do you do with it? And Victor is, he's a showman. I mean, I think, I, I think again, there's like the, 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 the thing with Vic is, 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 is there's almost like this kind of P.T. Barnum thing that he can do yeah. where he's a ring, ringleader. And it's just, and he curates this amazing theatrical, almost like circus-like experience in that space. But because he's doing it without scenery, it's much more intimate and you feel much more connected to the people doing it. Um, but then he can turn on a dime and do Amazing Grace or The Lesson or just stand and chat to people. And I think there's a, there's a guilelessness to him that comes out in that. But it's just, it's hugely compelling. And it's, and it, I think for me as a solo performer, it's interesting because, because my, my music is, is incredibly low energy in that way. I don't, you know, I have the, the application of the bits of my technique that are highly developed in a sort of dexterous way. It's, it's not applied in, in that kind of, super fast slapping and tapping kind of direction. I can do bits of that. I, you know, mm -hmm. I did a bunch of that in the 90s. But it wasn't what I heard when I started thinking of solo music because the music came from somewhere else. And then I just applied my bass skills to making it. But I did, I remember seeing him and thinking about the arc of the show. And the same, I mean, I, you know, I've, I've lost count of the number of shows that Michael Manning and I have done together. But we used to talk about that a lot, like, like the, the, he used to he used to be amazed that I would start a set with like a completely ambient piece, like like I would give people no kind of adrenaline spike at all at the start of the gig. Like he would normally come in with something like Helios or one of his sort of you know kind of high energy rhythmic things, yeah. and then that would be the arc of the show. It would start there and kind of go somewhere else. And and I early on would start with a with a tune like a kind of a a, a sort of bouncy melodic piece, but as time went on, I would quite often start at like zero energy where everything was kind of atmospheric and it was all emotion rather than rather than adrenaline and and, and create a sense of expectation but doing it from from my own expectation that people were already listening that i didn't have to try and capture their attention and i think that that's it took me a long time to realize that that's actually quite a a luxurious place to be as an artist and i think it's because i played to eight people at a time most of the time that i get to have that 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 because if you're playing to, if I was playing festivals, I wouldn't get to do that. When I, when I did those shows opening for Level 42 in 2002, I didn't get to do that. Because then you haven't got people's attention and you have to grab it. And the history of rock and roll is getting people's attention. It's not presenting people whose attention you already have with an experience. It's the fact that venues are invariably funded by people getting drunk in them. It says that... that attention is not the key metric here that enjoyment excitement you know all those kind of things that we have this understanding that what music is meant to do for us is make us feel something on that kind of on that sort of axis that sort of adrenaline endorphin axis and i've never done that like that's never been the central kind of spine to what i do as a performer which always leaves me in a really odd place in bass player conversations because there's this whole thing about groove and for me mm -hmm groove exists for a totally different purpose like i love the fact that that you can take the fact that there is this incredibly fixed set of expectations for what we're going to do with the time elements of a drum part particularly for me playing to a predominantly 
sort of white middle-aged audience that I get to use elements of hip-hop in ways that throw them off completely and leave them wondering whether it's just that I can't play. <laughs> like, are you just really terrible? Is this, are you having a stroke right now? Mm. Or was this intentional? And then I can kind of work with that and make it, and then make the intention apparent through it. But it, it, what Victor has always done is that there's always been that arc that's, that where he has these incredible like peaks of excitement and energy. And you, when you see some of the, the sort of the long form set pieces that he would do with, with Reggie and particularly with JD Blair, but also with Dorico. But I think the trio with JD was the one that always really stunned me was they would do these things where they would be chucking instruments to each other and doing whole sections of incredibly meticulously worked out unison stuff between the three of them. And the sense of wow was amazing. The sense of, of excitement at the kind of groove and the dexterity and all this kind of, and then there's the circus trick of juggling basses. Like it's, it's, he's, he's not left anything out that can be added in to improve the experience for the audience in terms of the direction he wants to go. He's like, I want to take people to this place. Here are all the aspects that I can bring to that. And it becomes physical theater as well as music, as well as, you know, uh, um, performance art in so many different ways. And I think that, that there's a real lesson in that for us as, as players. And, and as a result, um, you know, there are other things that he, he ends up playing catch up on. And I think that that's, that's, oh, that's always the thing with, with musicians is that nobody get, ever gets to do everything. And we talk as though everybody should, as though somehow there's, there's, an, there's an orthodox path that requires everybody to do a certain kind of thing. And actually, with a lot of players who are great at something, you can, you, can, you can flip it around and go, yeah, and the reason they're great is because they haven't focused their attention on that thing. They focused it on the thing that matters to them. Yeah. And so I remember reading recently about Prince and somebody saying that he only ever or, or almost always used presets, like on any keyboard or sound module that he was using. Oh, yeah. That's... He, wasn't, he wasn't into sound design at all. No, that's true. Um, you know that... that drum beat for seven 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 ninety three eleven like that on that time song that he produced and played yeah, yeah. On, that's that was a preset garibaldi rhythm that right. david garibaldi made for lindrum yeah that he didn't you know like that that's and, that's and, the that's the thing but i mean what a, and he would but he but he would do that in order to then get on with the thing that mattered to him yeah which was the composite impact of all of it but it means yeah. that if what you're looking for is sound design you're much better off looking at <laughs> David Sylvian or the Blue Nile, or right. even even you know um, Jay Diller or or Knowledge or Anderson Pack or somebody in kind of because there are hip hop producers that do sound design better than Prince did because yeah. that wasn't what he was trying to do. No, not at all. I, and, I, uh, I think that's why if you listen to his '90s stuff, there's stuff that didn't really age that well because mm, it it definitely exactly. it definitely was a product of a certain moment in time. And uh, that's that. But I wanted to go back to something we were talking, you were just talking about um, this whole idea of being all things to all people um, and how that's a detriment. I think it's, it's a false narrative that I don't really believe has any place no. anymore. You know, like, I think that's, that's the thing that low key, I wonder what people are actually thinking about that because um, in well, 
I've just I've just been enjoying your kind of Jankstradamus moment in these in these podcasts where you where because you've said a few times that you your hope is that that coming out of this people are more authentic in their art. Yeah. Because they they stop behaving like their job is to do is to you know that 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 their task is to just make things that are popular. Yeah. And that that's the measure of it that that, that they need to kind of be able to do everything in order to then meet that commercial target rather than actually look inwards and go, what is it about me that's important? And I think that that was, that's a really interesting, alongside this particular, wherever you're going with this train yeah. of thought, I'm going to let, throw it back to you. But oh, I, just, yeah. I, found, I found that really interesting as the, the idea that, that moments of kind of where we're faced with our own mortality actually invite us to go, you know what, there's some other stuff that I, I, I can be successful by being more focused on, my own integrity and my own purpose than I can on external metrics of metrics of success and meeting right. those orthodox expectations. Anyway, so go back to what you're saying, because you're about to say, well, okay. So, um, well, cause I, I think, I mean, I think the, the one backdrop to this discussion also that I, I don't know if I've always contextualized when I've, when I've talked about this, um, cause there's the artist part of it where it's like, well, am I being true to myself? But, the, the other thing is like a lot of people um, and myself included, like doing any kind of sideman work, like in that realm, there are just accepted norms and things that are part of a vocabulary that, that yeah. ensures that somebody's going to work. And so I definitely think that um, depending on like what people's goals are for their careers. Uh, and I'm saying this, like, in the context that things are, are somewhat operating as they did before COVID-19, yeah. of course. But like, you know, just the idea that like, okay, we need, we need you to do this for the music. We need the drones to do this. Can you guys make that happen? And I think there is a strong population of bass players and drummers that are pretty happy in that realm. But yeah, then you also have people that do that and then they write their own music and, and maybe there's less you know, the same rules of how certain things work apply, but it's not, I don't know. It's like, you're not, I, I don't make my own music the way it is so I can get gigs. You know what I'm saying? But like, if yeah. I'm playing bass with someone and I know that like, I have to do that this way to make the music work a certain way, then that's how I'll play. But it's like, I think there's sometimes like what, I, what I'm getting at when I say that is like, I think there's a calculated thing that people need to feel like they need to tap into to yeah. kind of check the box so that they'll be desirable and i feel like that may not be the most um honest place sometimes and only the people who are doing that that can identify within themselves could really like you know decide if that's something they're quote-unquote guilty of or not but um yeah exactly it's very difficult to see from the outside and i think because i think i think that that's there are a couple of really really interesting things in there so i think that it's really problematic if you if you find yourself in a place where you're making art and it's it's designed to be an advert for some other aspect of your of your financial life so you're making a record because you want to get a gig with somebody right that strikes me as a bloody awful reason to make a record like mm -hmm. like like the chances of you making something meaningful that connects with people in that setting is are pretty small i mean you know maybe some people got away with it if you ever listened to an interview with diane warren like she writes all these incredible songs and is actually like so cynical about the process. It's hilarious. So, you know, there are people who can just go, yeah, like, like I remember hearing her talk about 
the lyrics to Don't Want to Miss a Thing, the Aerosmith song, and she says, she said that opening line, you know, I would lay awake just to hear you sleeping, uh, hear you breathing. She says, that, that is the creepiest thing I can ever imagine. If somebody did that, I'd kick them out straight away. <laughs> yeah. But, but she kind of knows her craft. And I think that that's the, th that's the key, is that when, if you can separate out art and craft, then then you're you're flying because you go great well my craft the craft that i bring to somebody else's work is that i am a tool for them to to execute their vision and the success mm. or failure of that is whether or not they're happy with what i've done my own perception of the aesthetic of what's going on is is way way down the list of priorities than whether or not that person that you're working for has gone steve i love what you just did but <laughs> that's that's what matters and you can be playing the most tired shitty music ever i mean when you and this is the thing when you talk to session players who do that you know who only do that they never bitch about the people they're working with like i've never heard lee sklar describe anything that he's played on as cheesy or said that a record sucked or said that an artist was just you know hideously commercial he's i've heard him complain about the ethics of certain artists but that's you know again because he's fairly politically motivated and, and you know has that sort of that fantastic side to him but I've, yeah. I've never heard him diss the music at all. And you don't because you realize that that's not your job. You're not there to, to make a, an aesthetic judgment about the success of, about whether the finished product is successful or not. Your job is to, is to fulfill the vision of the writer, the artist and the producer. And developing, like, exactly like you say, developing the skills to do that. There are physical skills that are needed depending on the setting. And if you don't present those skills, people won't hire you to do that. There's, there's, there are a number of reasons why I don't get hired <laughs> for those kind of gigs. And one of the, one of the main ones is that nobody ever, get, nobody ever hears me doing that stuff. So whenever right. I do, <clears throat> I did a gig a couple of years ago with a guy called Fayan Zek, uh, who's a guitar player that I worked with. Uh, you know, we, we, we're, he's one of my best friends. Uh, but his record, the band on his record was Marco Miniman, Brian Bella and Mike Keneally. Wow. So it was Satriani's band, but it was the first time the three of them had ever played together was on Fi's record before, before Satch. And it's all odd time prog, like extraordinarily complex music. Like it, it took me four months to learn the music. Jeez. Completely crazy. Um, after last night, I'm imagining that Hadrian Ferrode would learn it in a week or a day <laughs> or an hour or before he'd even heard it. But, uh, because what a phenomenon. Um, but, um, but yeah, it took me months to learn it. And, but I did the gig and everyone was like, wow, you can play like that. I'm like, yeah. Like I didn't kind of fall out of bed one morning with a, with a hangover and a, and, a, and a credit card debt and a pile of basses and went, what the fuck happened here? Like, you know, I play bass for a reason. Like there's a reason why I ended up with this instrument. And there's, there's a whole side to the craft and the tradition and the history of bass that I absolutely love that has nothing to do with what I'm doing as an artist. Like, I don't feel any responsibility to James Jameson or Carol Kay or Lee Sklar or whoever when I, pick, when I sit down to play music. I don't feel like I'm in a tradition that includes anyone. I'm constantly picking from different bits of sonic material to tell a story. And a lot of that is from soundtrack work and some of it's from singer-songwriters. A lot of it at the moment is from hip-hop and electronica. But I don't feel any obligation to any of it to do anything other than what I feel like needs to happen at the time. Yeah. And obviously you can't approach someone else's music like that. I can't go into somebody else's music and go, you know what this needs? 
it needs me to sit down with a pile of weird pedals and make a fucking strange noise with an ebo they're like no no mate this exactly. is kind of sh it's sort of chic yeah no no but what you need is this you know steve can you just how about i play cuneo i'll just i'll just play drums on it you know <laughs> like, like that's and and i think there there is a fear if you present yourself as i have done for 20 years as primarily an artist there is a fear that you will bring that vision to bear on other people's work in a way that will will cloud their own vision and it's very difficult to communicate to people the opposite and to say look if i'm working with you i'm going to do whatever you need me to do because that's what i'm here for and it's your vision that matters not mine and I'm, and if you want to use all that that side of my arsenal i'm happy to bring pedals and do weird noises and play ebo and shred and play solos and do whatever it is you need <laughs> But ultimately, it's your vision. If what you need is is for me to play footballs for an hour, that's fine. I'll do that. You know, I'm happy to sit and play whole notes. And and I would feel great if that if we got to the end of that and you went, yeah, that was done with the right tone and feel and and discipline that was needed for the tune, because that's craft. It's not about my art. And whether the art at the end of it is any good or not, it's not my concern. The concern is that I'm doing a job, and I've done a bloody awful job of communicating to people that i'm willing to do that and you know and i'm kind of okay with that because at a higher level uh, kind of when we, if we're talking about fusion gigs um in particular there is a vocabulary that i don't have and i intentionally don't have it because i realized pretty early on in my playing life that the bit that i didn't like about other people's vocabulary particularly mm -hmm. bass players was when they started playing bebop licks on bass and I would go, oh, I really like what you were doing then. But then suddenly it went all, you know, and I went, no, that's a load of rubbish. And I don't want them to stop doing it because it's their vision and that's what they should do. But right. I realized that if I committed the time to learning the Omni book so that I could then play a bunch of bop tunes with people on a stand at the damn show, which yeah. is such a moribund aim. If I'd, if I'd done that, that would be there in my playing because what you practice is what comes out when you sit down to play. And I don't have that. I have a sonic palette that doesn't include that at all. And so nobody ever hears me do that. And if I, if I got called to do that, I could learn to do it in a couple of weeks. Like I have all of the tools required to do it. I understand it from a, from a knowledge point of view. I know, you know, I understand bebop harmony. I've studied harmony enough to do that. I could do that, but I don't, and I haven't for very specific and purposeful reasons. And it's because I don't want it to appear in my music. I don't yeah. have to fight against a bunch of stuff that I've spent years trying to learn. Yeah. And, and that, that stuff doesn't come along by accident. You know, when you look at somebody like Adrian Farrow, that that's years and years and years of work to get that precise and that clean and that fast on that material. And I'm, I'm, there's, a, there's enough people doing that. Like that I, don't, I didn't feel the need to fill a gap there. It's not like as an artist, I felt like there was a whole, there's a version of that that I need to do better than anybody else or with a different story. Yeah. Like my, the hole that I need to fill in the kind of creative landscape is elsewhere. And so I didn't, I never bothered developing that. And so, you know, whenever, whenever anything I do gets anywhere close to that, people go, well, I'd never, never even imagined that you could play like that. Or even if I played pop tunes, I did it recently because I teach in a college here in Birmingham. We recently, the tutors all did a, we did a version of Rosanna as a kind of, you know, lockdown thing where we all recorded the parts. 
and I sent it out to my Bandcamp subscribers, and a bunch of them were like, "Wow, you can play!" But I was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah I can play the bassline to Rosanna." <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what kind of a bass player would I be if I couldn't? At this point, you know, if if thirty five years into my bass playing career, I was struggling to play Rosanna, and and you know, because that that there is, like I said, I have this deep love for that tradition. It just doesn't factor into what I do as a solo artist at all. Well, let me ask you this: How? How, because this is sort of where I was going to steer the bigger part, and this is what I was trying to get to, like, how, how important would you say it is in 2020, let's ignore, like, the world on fire bits of 2020. <laughs> yeah. How important is it, do you think, uh, for people to just embrace their lane now? Because, um there's not as many opportunities for session work. It's definitely not one of those things that everybody's going to have access to, even if they're suited to do it and they have the skills. Um, like how, like, cause that's what I think about a lot too. I think there's, there's a level of honesty about my own playing. I've had to kind of come to grips with those like, yeah, you know, like I'm, I'm never going to get called to play this type of stuff probably. And I have to make peace with that. You know? but, it, but, it, but if you do and if you do it won't be because you've de ever, because you're in a directory somewhere like nobody's looking through a union handbook to find a bass player anymore right you know it, it will be because you meet somebody in a bar and they go yeah that jenkins guy's cool yeah yeah and it's, it'll be an easy gig and you'll suddenly you'll end up like vinnie Coliuta playing with faith hill and getting paid triple scale to play tambourine on a tv show <laughs> you know and right. it's like and it, they didn't. They, nobody did that because they desperately needed Vinny's skill. He wasn't playing in eleven on Faith Hill's stuff, or you know, superimposing times of music and playing the Black Page in between two country hits. Yeah, like just... he did it because they liked him and he was trustworthy. And that 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 doesn't. That's not a thing you can kind of build up. No, like but I'm saying in terms of like building. Um, I mean, I say building a career. Yeah, yeah. Understanding I, 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 that, that can mean different things to different people. Like for some people, it could be their livelihood. For other people, it could just be like the embodiment of what their ongoing musical existences. But how I I feel I, like I, at this I, point, I, go ahead. So I thought you hit on it earlier on when you said about you know the fact that there are some people for whom just playing other people's songs is what matters to them. Like, and I think that's the thing. If you have an artistic vision, you are insane not to chase it at this point because it's all so precarious so at least do something that feeds your soul at least yeah. do something that at the end of the day you go to bed at night going well that was worthwhile <laughs> that was a thing that was worth doing because if you can't then you know what have you got like just get a job in a shop just do you know get a job as a computer programmer learn learn you know c plus plus or java or something and go and like, because there's, like, the world of work is changing so rapidly. And mm -hmm. as an artist, like, we, we don't, I keep getting asked, because, again, because I, I've worked in social media for so many years, mm -hmm. and I've worked in education for so many years, I get people saying to me, what do you think is the future of where this is going for musicians? I'm like, I mean, going, stop a minute, nobody understands the present. Like, almost nobody is, is using the resources that we have available to us now in a way that makes any sense. Yeah, what do you mean by that? that I think most people are trying to build a set of, they're either capitulating to the attention metrics of social media, which are actually about getting people to look at adverts. They're not about the value of the thing that you're 
that you're posting that mm-hmm. that 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 Facebook are interested in you seeing many many pages, so you look at more adverts and they get more money. Right, that's what they do. And 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 until you pay for an advert, you're not the client. You're the bait for the client. That your eyeballs are there to be marketed to. And so we either give into that or people are trying to build, trying to understand the symbolic capital of the old record industry and reconstruct it online. So they're looking at the prestige factor of having a record deal or being celebrated in, you know, pitchfork or whatever it is. And it doesn't mean anything now because what you need is a bunch of people who care about you. That actually that, that fame on that kind of scale these days can happen without any money at all like you can i mean you can end up with no money i don't mean you can get it without paying anything it's actually quite very expensive virality is normally quite an expensive path but you can get to that point and have made nothing you know we've we, there, there are numerous stories of youtubers who have a million followers on youtube and are still trying to get a job in starbucks but can't because they keep getting recognized um wow. because because there are you know and, that, and there's it's it, you can get really screwed up like that and the industry, the, the, the traditional music industries, the various bits of it that, that are sort of still hanging around, that haven't just been just, you know, morphed into um, a kind of more 360 entertainment vibe. Um, the bits that are still trying to make records and sell it to people who listen to music, they don't understand that at all. They don't understand the idea of, of connecting with your audience as something other than an amorphous, vast fan group you know uh and i don't know it just it just it seems like such a tired aim it feels like it's the rewards for that are so small these days and the chances of doing it given how many artists there are in the world the percentages are getting smaller and smaller and there are so many other ways to make art in a meaningful and sustainable way that it just it it, it i don't know it feels like such a bizarre aim so if you can make art then make the art you can make and tell the story of how it's made using the tools that are available. You know, so I think, again, it, we'll come back to the way that I've used the, the, what we were saying at the beginning about storytelling on social media. If I was just to get on, on Twitter and Facebook every day and go, hey, buy this, here's my new thing, check this out, nobody cares. It has to be the end point of a story. It has to be, and therefore, because all of this stuff is going on in my life, this is where the new record is, because this is how the world is, and here's the soundtrack to trying to understand it that I can tell that story. Or if you make party music, it's like, the world has gone to shit. Here's five minutes of relief. Here's five minutes away from that where we can actually think about things being fun and danceable and enjoyable. Like, it's not like all music has to be heavy and political, but you have to present what it's a diversion to if you're gonna, if you're gonna present that to somebody. Because otherwise you're basically the, the MP3 equivalent of the fire Festival. <laughs> right. yeah like nobody wants to end up there where you're just like pretending that everything's great and actually it's a complete fucking disaster you're the garbage fire <laughs> going on in the background so so i think i think you're right i think i think that actually it's really important to follow your muse in that way because especially like the, the whole session thing like it just doesn't really seem to exist as a career anymore i, I have friends who work in in vegas shows and do bar gigs and do things like that and the ones who are doing it really successfully and are actually you know paying their bills with it have been doing it for a long long time Mm. because all the ones who are 20 and trying to do it are happily taking gigs for 50 bucks and nobody can afford to live for that anymore and it's not that the music economy's got worse it's that the cost of 
keeping a roof over your head has gone up you know as as a percentage of, of people's earnings has gone up astronomically so just staying housed is so expensive now that a lot of the options that were available to musicians in the 70s and 80s are no longer available and that's not about the music economy it's about the wider economy you just can't you can't maintain a roof over your head on one day a week's work which you could for a long time you you know if 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 it was 1982 and you wanted to go and live somewhere down in orange county or out, out, you know, out along I-10 in, in, in LA, you could live, you could have had a, a day and a half's week work in a shop and spent the rest of your time playing music and you could have lived on it. And mm. you can't do that now. That doesn't exist. You could, you, people did it in London. There was an entire class of artists and journalists and writers in 70s London who lived in squats. You know, they just occupied empty houses and did them up and lived in them for years and years and years at a time. And the law protected their right to do that. So you had an entire artistic class in London that was built on free accommodation. And that doesn't exist now. That wouldn't have enabled people otherwise, though, right? Like that was a significant no, no. component. That's a ma massive, massive part of it. And, yeah. and, you, and you had people leaving Cambridge and Oxford, you know, with these super high-level educations, and moving straight into a squat because the, it's placed within the hierarchy wasn't these are homeless people it was this is a place where artists can live for free and do crazy work mm -hmm. and do monty python and do the young ones and do french and saunders and be in bands and make you know and be punk bands and be designers and make clothes and change fashion and all of that happened because living was cheap or even free Right. That's and and we've forgotten that. We've forgotten that, that 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 was the context within which all of that stuff happened. So we go on and on about how Spotify doesn't pay people enough. And you go, yeah, but these people won't make any money out of record sales. They would, you know, we have far greater opportunity to make money off Bandcamp than, than than your average band ever had back in the day when they had to recoup the cost yeah. of making a record on a label. Well, that's what and I wanted to ask. Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to. Oh. My last point was just going to be that nine out of ten albums released on on labels and have failed to recoup. On their budgets and nobody was making any money off them yeah well you okay so here's where i'm glad you, we went here because um you've been pretty vocal and had really like well well thought out and informed uh like views on on where the music at least as far as like distributing music and selling music like you've had some pretty great ideas about that for a long time. Do you, and I sort of feel like now it's whatever that story is about, or that narrative about like the frog that's being like boiled slowly. I feel like uh, now yeah. people are starting to realize how fucked it is in a way. Like, whereas yeah. like for a long time, you were of the opinion, no, these, a lot of this stuff isn't good and you should really think about doing it independently and, you know, like let people, I don't know, like make it accessible, like financially. Um, and then you have that model on Bandcamp, which very much, I mean, I know you were like, well, you were like the first person to do it, right? Like you and- yeah, there, there, there were three, three of us who got to, to trial it out of the half a million bands on Bandcamp. Three of us got to try it out for six months before anybody else did. Um, yeah. and, and, I, and I fed into the making of it as well. Um, and I, I don't know how much of, because I, I used to meet once a year with the CEO of, of Bandcamp and uh he would just say what do you what how are you getting on with the site what do you want it to do and i mean we chat about everything else as well because 
he's a lovely guy and a friend, but he would ask me what I wanted to do and he would take notes. And sometimes it was things they were already doing. And sometimes it was things where you go, that's brilliant. We're never, ever going to do that. <laughs> and sometimes it was, it was, you know, things that crept into the pipeline. So there's probably some percentage of Bandcamp's functionality that I came up with yeah. or at least fed into, um, which is, which is again, a, 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 an incredible position to be in and one that I'm hugely grateful for. Right. But yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the subscription thing came about at just the right time for me because I've always wanted to release more music than the standard release recoup tour promo cycle allowed for but you know that idea that you make a record and 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 before it comes out you've got to pay for pressing and you have to pay for advertising and then on the day of release you're x amount in debt and then you hope to make it back and you go out on tour and you play those tunes and so for me i had through the 90s i was doing a lot i'm sorry not through the 90s through the noughties through the 90s through the 90s i was playing <laughs> dreadful gospel music but we'll get we'll gloss over that um <laughs> through the noughties once my solo career began i was improvising in the studio all the time everything that you hear on my records is is, is a first take one take improv none of it's edited but i would learn those tunes and go back and play them live because i needed to sell the cds i needed to recoup that stuff and so i kind of and, and i was putting out one solo album and one duo album a year for a while but I, would, I still had more stuff than, than I wanted to release. So I started doing these limited edition 100 CD extra discs that came with pre-orders of the album. And it was a way of, of getting people to pay up front for the record, um, which helped me to recoup. But also it was a way of getting more music out there. And sometime in the mid-noughties, I started, would you remember street teams? Do you remember the concept of street teams? Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. I remember where, you know, you'd you have super fans who would help you out with stuff. And so I had a street team and, and I had this file on my server called the street team stash and i would chuck any mp3s that i couldn't find anything else to do with into there i was having a conversation with a couple of the guys who've been listening to me for the longest recently on twitter and one of them has got has got like 10 more albums by me than i've got and i was like what the hell are they what have you got that i haven't and it was all the stuff that i'd given the street team back in the day so i was always looking for ways of, of so it was kind of that was a sort of proto version of the subscription it was just me people who were helping me out and i didn't really kind of ask much of them i would just kind of want them to go and be nice about me to their friends i didn't kind of structure it very well um because i've never been a big one for kind of demanding obligation from listeners i kind of want to make music that, that deserves it um and so by the by the the beginning of sort of the 2010s i uh i was like about 2012 i met a musician in san francisco called daniel berkman and he and i it was just after my setup my life setup had switched to being one where i could multi-track everything all the time so i could record everything at studio quality and we did this tour where we across two years we played 10 shows to, across two januaries because i would go out for nam and then we'd do a bunch of bunch of dates and we recorded these 10 house concerts and i realized i wanted to put the whole lot out and so I spent four months mixing and mastering all of this music, uh, wow. which was great. It was really, you know, I, I'm super proud of it. And, but it's all improvised. So every album's different. There's no set list. There's no, you know, I, I, we had to give titles and write stories for it all. Um, uh, but I realized that at that point, like, what do you do with that? You can't make 10 CDs. So I put it on USB stick. But, but it became apparent very quickly that that wasn't a model that would work going forward. And I needed something else. 
And that's the point at which I started having the conversations with Bandcamp about a subscription. Because I realized that my improv recording cycle was way, way too prolific for me to ever make CDs. Like I was producing too much music that I wanted to get out there of a sufficiently high quality that, you know, I, at the time I thought, well, I want to put out four or five albums a year. I'm now putting out 10, 11, 12 albums a year. And I was collaborating with different people and I wanted to be able to release some of that. And so, so when the subscription came along in 2015, I think it started with Bandcamp, I was like, yeah, this is, this is, this is perfect timing because I've got this, this backlog of material. And I think up to that point, I'd put out something like 12 albums plus the 10 album set. And I'm now up to 80, I think. Hmm. Um, and so, but, but what I wanted, because it's about the same time Patreon launched. Right. right. And Patreon's thing at the time was that you paid uh, by iteration of whatever the thing was. So if you, if so, Jack, what's his name from Pomplamoose was getting a dollar or $2 from people every time he made a video. And I didn't want that. I wanted people to just give me a flat fee and then me to be able to surprise them with more stuff. I didn't want them to have to pay more if I made more. I wanted to be able to be, I wanted it to be something that people were grateful for because, and this comes back to our whole thing about social media and how it works. I, the, the, the most powerful currency online is gratitude. And if your audience are actually grateful to you for making something, then piracy or file sharing or whatever nonsense, that's never a conversation you need to have. Because if people are, are downloading it, they're doing it because they're broke and that's okay and I don't mind them having it. Um, but if you've got a relationship with the audience where they're actually grateful to you for making it, then they're going to look for ways to, to help out. They're going to look for ways to express that gratitude. And you just need to create ways that are, again, continue that, continue that process where they're grateful that you would make that available to them. And that's what the subscription was. So it's only, it's like 30 pounds a year. And for that you get, I think it's like 56 or 57 albums straight away now. Wow. And then whatever I put out in the following year. And so from a, an out, if, if you're thinking about the value of an album as a thing, as a kind of, you know, the, 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 as an entity, you go, well, that's amazing. That's, that's 400 pounds worth of music. And you go, well, no, it's not, of course it's not, it's bollocks. It doesn't work like that. You don't, can't weigh it and measure it out like potatoes and go and make gnocchi out of it. Right. Um, but you, <laughs> but it, it, it's there and it's an experience. And so you go, great. Well, there's, there's this 56 album long story that I can go and dive into. And I can, you can follow the story arc. You can start at the beginning and hear my first album and follow through and hear exactly what happened. And, but also there's space within the subscription, uh, the, the subscriber area on Bandcamp. People just come and talk to me about it. And I can tell stories about it and we can flag up a certain record and go, hey, everybody can never listen to this one. And then we'll come back and have a chat about it. And it's been amazing because, because it takes you completely out of that, that freeway journey towards 150,000 monthly listeners on Spotify that, that no solo bass player is ever going to get that. That's ridiculous. The idea that I would actually, that there were going to be 150,000 people who want to listen to me, unless I ended up on a sleep playlist. Like if one of my ambient tunes ended up on a playlist that people listen to to sleep to, then like to help insomniacs, I might end up with 100,000 listeners. But in terms of people who are actually engaged with the story of what I'm doing, that's never going to happen. And it's not, and I don't want it to happen on that scale. I don't want 150,000 listeners. Like that would genuinely be a, be a, uh, that would genuinely screw things up. So do you, 
um, I was going to, sorry to interrupt, uh, the, the whole concept of like the thousand two true fans thing, is that, do you give credence to that? Like, is that sort of more the ethos? Yeah. I mean, again, Ke- you know, Kevin Kelly's a great blog writer. So he kind of, he sort of encapsulated a thing and made it far more concrete than it really is. It's much more fluid than that. Mm-hmm. And I th- again, it's sort of, he was sort of instrumentalizing your audience to fund your art. And I think it has to be much more collaborative than that. Right. That, that, that your audience are not there to pay your bills. That's not why they exist. That, that the, 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 there's a third part to that triangle, which is the music. And the music isn't just fodder that you produce, like it's plastic dog shit that you're trying to sell on Amazon to, you know, as a joke <laughs> thing. Like, right. it's, like it's, I'm, not, I'm not making fake fried eggs that you can leave on a work surface. Like it's, it's, like, like, like it's meant to connect my life to theirs. I'm trying to soundtrack the world as I see it and find people who care enough about that process to make it possible for me to keep doing it. And so the way that I think about it now, I mean, so much so that I'm doing a PhD in it, is that it's this journey from an audience who buy your stuff to what I'm calling a community of practice, where you have, you make stuff, but you make it in collaboration with a bunch of people who are uh, expert in what you're trying to do. And there are members of my audience who, who know my own history better than I do that I will play things and they'll go, oh, that reminds me of such and such. And I'll go, what, what? I don't even remember making that. And they'll link me to a thing and I'll go, wow, shit, I've done this before and I didn't even realize mm. that I have this. And, and that level of investment is so valuable and so rich. And, it's, and so for me to, to reduce them to being, maybe if I make t-shirts, I can get some more money off them. Like, it would just be insane. And so the Kevin Kelly thing was, was how do I make a ton of money out of people? Um, and he, I mean, you know, he wasn't, he was, he was trying to, he was talking about it in sort of middle-class terms, you know, how do you make a, a reasonable salary? And yeah. for me, actually, my, my, my aim is to make the art itself sustainable. Um, so I'm quite happy to teach as well and to write for a magazine as well. I don't, I'm not sure I'd want to spend every hour of the day playing bass because yeah. I need something to play about. I like doing those other things. Right. Um, I have a, a curiosity about the world that needs to be explored in a number of different ways. But what I do have is this community who are deeply invested in the story of how that works and in making it possible for it to keep going. And so the fact that I can set the price as low as I do, I mean, this is the other thing is that I also want to be part of a world in which lots and lots of artists get to do what I'm doing. Like I don't want to win a lottery here. So if I was charging 10 bucks a month for this, I'd probably be honestly i'd probably be making more money because there are enough people who would pay that that i would be much better off but i would be there would be a bunch of people whose entire discretionary music money music budget would be mine and i don't want that i want people to go and buy other people's music like all of my albums on bandcamp are two quid each not because they're only worth two quid if that means anything at all but they're two pounds each because that leaves people with the rest of their budget to go and spend on other people yeah. And I want to, I want to be part of a community where we all do well. Like I'm not, I don't, I don't want to win. There's no, there's no winning in this unless everybody wins. And so in order to normalize subscriptions as a way of funding art, they need to be cheap enough that your, you know, average music obsessive can subscribe to five, 10, 15 artists a year. And it, it be not significantly more than they would have spent on Spotify and Netflix combined. Yeah, that's so true, man. Like, I, I definitely think, uh, 
things feel, I, I feel very, very inspired in a lot of ways by what people are doing with the means that they're using to do them with. Mm -hmm. Like I, I really like, I happen to really like YouTube. I like what a lot of the musicians do with Instagram, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. especially when they cater to what it actually is. Um, I don't know. I think, I, I don't think, um, like I think about this a lot because I definitely think sometimes it's easy for your, for one's ideology about how stuff quote unquote should be. It's always going to be like colored by your fan experience, you know? And, mm. and I, I think that's the thing. And then when you get into it because it's your, it's your career or, you know, and, and in mm. my case, like I've, I've had day gigs before and it's been, I've always liked the balance of it, but like, being a full-time musician, it's, it, it does frame it differently, but um, you start to understand decisions that you wouldn't understand if you were just a fan of something, you know, like, exactly. yeah. like why would someone play this gig? Um, it's sacrilege to do that because blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, no, like people, someone else would take that gig if that person didn't yeah. do it. Like just that whole thing. But um, I think, I think the, the thing that's interesting about, um, I was thinking about like MTV and its role in how how it made how how it made people aware of stuff and just the idea that it was like a primary source um, for for a lot of exposure because uh, I think it was either yesterday or the day before it was like the anniversary uh, I don't know what year it was like uh, it was like the anniversary of like Cult of Personality being released. Oh wow! As a yeah, single. yeah, yeah, and. Um, I also remember reading in this book about MTV called uh, I Want My MTV. Um, the, they, they talked to Corey Glover in there. It's actually a really great book uh, if, if you have any inclinations or care yeah, about it. I'm like, fascinated by that bit of the history, for sure. So apparently the other part of the story, and uh, I, got, I, I got to talk to Vernon about this because sometimes like we'll have like interesting conversations and like there's definitely things we've talked about like there was the whole thing about uh when guns and roses and living color were torn yeah. together with the stones and like what was that really yeah. like like because they had that song with like yeah, 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 yeah. In it. one in one in a million yeah 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 Yeah, and like vernon was like dude slash was cool we hung out all the time but anyway the one part of the narrative that i know vernon's talked about is that like cult of personality wasn't the first single off that record it was middleman yeah and uh Vernon told their A&R person, Cult is the single, and they listened to him, and, and it blew up. But what, what I also understood from reading this book about MTV, Corey Glover was saying that Epic Records was using Michael Jackson's videos as leverage to get Living Color played on MTV. Oh, wow, really? And it was something like, we're not going to send you, you got to play this, and we're not going to give you, we're going to give it to BET first or something. Like, it was... It was definitely, yeah. there was like some tactical things going on with it. Well, and Jagger and, was in their corner as well, wasn't he? So that was kind of, I think that kind of gave them a bit of leverage because he, yeah. he produced Glamour Boys and and was vocally on their side. And later on, David Bowie as well. Yeah. yeah, but I guess what I'm saying is like, now that there isn't really, there isn't really a tastemaker other than just there's destinations where people can discover things. And uh, I think... I think the thing that 
whatever you would call like the present day music business. And let's say like, I don't really know how to even define it because you know, we're, we're well out of the download phase, right? Like people download stuff, but it's not, I'm, I'm talking about like greatest common denominator. Like a lot of people are just streaming shit, you know? Um, like that's the, that's the status. That's like the default thing that most people do. And then you got people that are fans that buy music or they, they have, they have the files where they own it on vinyl and stuff like that. But hmm. I think by and large, like if we're going to judge it by like, what was a 17 year old kid doing in 1992? And what was, what is that same kid doing now? I think streaming is the way, but I think but, the thing but, that's but, weird is- But you have, to, you have to remember that the majority of 17 year old kids in 1992 were taping stuff off their friends and getting CDs for Christmas. That music, that music fans were not, the, the, in, the, in Britain in the 90s, the, the average music spend was something like 25 pounds a year per head. Oh, wow. So that's like two CDs. Like that was what, that, that was, and, and it was obviously wasn't evenly spread. So you had a bunch of people who got none or got them for, for Christmas. Yeah. You know, we forget just how significant CD, vinyl and merch sales were at Christmas and how much of the, of the annual music spend was, was gifting like that, that they were such an easy thing to gift to a music fan. Every single birthday and Christmas and anything else, people would buy me music because I was a mu the music guy. Yeah, yeah. But I also had a ton of shit that I, that I copied off friends. And so if you, think, if you think the equivalent of Spotify back then was actually you know, trading, trading blank tapes. But what we did have was that there were these headline figures where, where there were, you know, there was X amount of music being sold, but a huge amount of that was back catalog stuff as well. That they, they, I don't know, again, I don't know how this works in the States. In the UK, they invented a second chart called the nice price chart yes. where all of the kind of cheap reissues. So yes, albums and James Taylor records that sold in enormous quantities constantly for God knows how long that they, they had their own chart because otherwise the charts would have just been full of old stuff. And so as soon as they dropped, they went from being a seven pound vinyl album to a 399 or 299 vinyl album. They moved into the separate chart so that they didn't, so that, so that they could still keep the focus on new music because that's where the engine of advertising and radio and TV and all of that, because, and, but that's, that was very much a kind of late 20th century, um, uh, like modernist construct. The idea that newness mattered right. was a thing that pretty much it kind of, it began to peter out at the end of the end of the eighties. That into the nineties, what you had was was new material that was retro. So you suddenly had uh, you know the the a ton of bands appearing that, that you know in in metal and rock. Suddenly, Sabbath and Zeppelin became the primary drivers of of, of new rock bands again. Which was kind of weird. Even Soundgarden sound like Led Zeppelin a lot of the time. And Sabbath, um, and, and a ton of bands. And so, so the retro thing came out again. But so when you see that that CD peak at the end of the '90s, when they say, "Oh, you know, CD started to fall because of of uh, because of file sharing or whatever," that actually what you've got at that point is it's the point at which everybody has replaced their old vinyl collection on CD, because that was that was where an enormous amount of those sales through from the mid '80s to about '97, '98, an enormous chunk of that was people rebuying things they already owned or people who'd grown up taping things off their friends, buying them because they now had a job and could afford to buy CDs. So you had, you had a, an awful lot of reformatting going on, people kind of getting things that they already owned. So in terms of the health of 
the music the music ecosystem rather than just the economy that music as a biosphere was actually very backwards looking very much focused on a tiny number of records changing the economy i mean even towards the end of the noughties there was the moment when cold plays i think it was x and y or maybe the maybe viva la vida one of those two records was delayed by three months and it moved it across the end of the tax year and it meant that the value of their record label dropped by something like eight percent for the previous year because of one record not coming out and wow. that level of of top heaviness in terms of where the value was that the year that adele's 21 i think it was came out that when that came out like all of a sudden the music industry in britain turned a profit and Rio was suddenly making massive amounts of money again because of one record and it's people who only bought that one record they didn't buy anything else they hadn't bought anything else in years and they bought it because of who she who she uh who she appealed to but we ended up with this whole narrative about the music economy as though it was this monolithic thing and what we were really talking about was the success or failure of about 10 artists who occupied the top 20 30 percent of all sales which is nuts and it doesn't it doesn't have any impact at all on what will or won't work for you or i or even for a band like living color who make x amount of the royalties from cult personality still being a classic rock radio in the states but who are still making incredible vital work now so they're fighting this thing of of they've got the tension of the fact that all of that historic stuff pays their bills Mm -hmm. but they have a story to tell now. And so records like, I mean, Shade is an astonishing record. It's, whenever yeah. people start going on about how oh, there's no great rock records played, I'm like, have you heard? The, have you heard? I mean, Chair in the Doorway was great, but Shade is amazing. And you go, you know, there's, they're a band who are absolutely at the top of their game now. And yet they will have had twice as many people come out to see them do the 30th anniversary of Vivid as, as came out on the Shade tour. What yeah. can you do? You know, the, the music economy is so weird like that. And so if you value, we're back to our conversation about art and craft. What do you value? Do you value leveraging the intellectual property in your back catalogue? Because that's what the music industry is now. That the reason that, they, that, that the majors care about Spotify is that if somebody is listening to ABBA now, they're not buying it. It doesn't matter what. If Spotify goes away, people are just going to go back to listening to the records they've already owned. Everybody who owns... ABBA Records already owns them. So sticking it on Spotify makes sense because it's free money. It's you getting paid for people who already own the record to listen to it again. You don't have to remarket it. People already care about it. People are looking for it. It doesn't matter how small the payment is. It just builds up over time. Same for every record that's already in their back catalog. So for a label, and particularly for a publisher, a label with its own publisher, like Sony or Universal or Warner, they they look and they go, well, well, okay, we've got these half a million songs here that people already care about and we can leverage the, we can exploit the intellectual property that exists in those by clamping down on illegal file sharing because that's obviously where people were going to replace their CDs and vinyl, they were just downloading it because who wants to sit and rip all their records? So we need to stop doing that. We need to get them onto a platform where they're paying to listen to the stuff that they already own. And we will do it, in order to do it, we will sacrifice all new music. We will fuck it up for every single new artist because we know that our value is in that catalogue that exists. And so that's why you get these, these you know, big arguments about the extension and the rights of, of copyright because some guys in the 50s were about to lose their copyright. 
we had it over here. They changed the, they changed the term, the terms of copyright to it. It was 70 years and it's now, or it was 50 years and it's now 70. That's insane. End of part one. This is a three hour episode. Part two is going to be uploaded also. So go check that out now.